As you look through the scriptures and see the purpose of the music that we sing in worship to the Lord, you'll see that one of the dominant purposes is really a, a handmaiden to preaching, to learning the truth of the scripture, and taking the truths that come from the word of God and, and singing them back to the Lord. It helps move our hearts and move our wills um, so that we conform our lives to what the scriptures teach. For Christ has given us the commission to teach uh, disciples to observe, to obey all that he's commanded us. And so the song we just sang came from First uh, Peter 1 and 2, uh, back in the days when we were actually teaching through that. And Paul Q., a member of our church, wrote those words. I don't know if you noticed that, but appreciate the, the work that he did to help bring that scriptural truth um, into song. And of course, that's true of many of the songs that we sing and um, hopefully all the songs that we sing. Uh, they're songs of praise to the Lord, prayers to the Lord, but also truth from the Lord. So we teach and admonish one another. I want to also thank uh, Dr. Bell. When I say Dr. Bell, I think of Dr. David Bell's dad because of his influence in, in my life. I want to thank Dr. Bell Jr., uh, David Bell, for opening the Word of God to us uh, last week uh, in the book of John in chapter 2. He talked about the zeal of the Lord in cleansing his temple, just like uh, the leaven was to be cleared from the house as you prepared for Passover. Well, when Jesus cleansed the temple of those who were making the temple into a house of trade, rather than leaving it as a house of worship, the Jewish leaders challenged him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, they're saying this, show us a miracle to prove that you have the right to exercise this kind of authority. They're not asking nicely. They're irritated that he's encroaching not just on God's business, but on their own, because they were making quite a bit of money off of all this. Well, it sounds a reasonable enough question until we read the verses that follow. It turns out that they were not lacking for miracles from Jesus. In fact, we're going to find this through his life. They keep asking for a sign. No matter how many miracles he does, they still want one more to quote-unquote, proved that he's actually the Messiah. Their demand was already dishonest and insulting, as if Jesus had given no evidence of his divine credentials. But there was another group that witnessed those miracles, and it had a huge impact on them. In time, this group would grow into significant crowds that would follow Jesus from place to place. Jesus would become very popular, and they would follow him at least for a while. There have always been people intrigued by power. It's intrinsically attractive by gifted teachers and preachers and persons who shake up a community. But we will learn today that, that a person needs much more than that in his life or her life. And that's what our text this morning is going to call us to. We're in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. John 2, 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. 
But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, that means my great one. It's a title of respect to someone who's a teacher. And that's really significant coming from Nicodemus, given his standing in the community. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We're obviously stopping in the middle of this encounter, and we're going to take it up. Uh, next week, but this at least sets the stage for us about Jesus' understanding of us and our need to be born of the Spirit. First off, in verses 23 to 25, Jesus knows the sincerity of your faith. Jesus knows the sincerity of your faith. You know, as we gather together like this, we can look around at one another and we assume the best about one another, but we don't really know where people are in their hearts. Jesus does. Jesus knows the sincerity of your faith. Second, Jesus perceives the kingdom that you seek. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3. And then finally, Jesus gives the life, that spiritual life, you most need. Verses 4 through 8. Consider with me first that Jesus knows the sincerity of your faith. Let's look at those verses at the end of chapter 2 once again. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. They saw the signs. They saw the miracles with a message. Signs is one of the three key terms for miracles, and it focuses on the, the significance, the message that the miracle is meant to communicate. Jesus was doing these signs, and many believed in His name. Now, that's the kind of language that John characteristically uses in his gospel to describe saving faith in Jesus. But as the verses go on, we realize that, that what follows, from what follows it, this faith is actually not a saving faith. It's a shallow sort of faith. They were impressed with Jesus' miracles, but, but somehow failed to understand their need for repentance and faith that would rely on Jesus as their Savior, not just as a miracle worker or a political deliverer. We know they trusted in Him only superficially because 
he did not entrust himself to them. They trusted him partway, but he did not trust them. And the question is, why? Well, the text answers the question because he knew what was in man. Nobody had to tell him. He could see who they were at heart. Jesus knew the depth, the sincerity of their faith, and he knew that their faith was not the real deal. Jesus knew all people, and Jesus knows you, and Jesus knows me. And at a level no other human being can see, Jesus, in fact, knows us better than we know ourselves. On one hand, that Jesus knows the sincerity of your faith can be a great comfort. You know, in a crowd of people and in a world of hurt, to know that that Jesus actually knows you. He not just notices you, but He knows you. He, He knows the struggles of heart. He he knows where you are. He knows what you are challenged by. He knows what are the the hang-ups that you have and the obstacles for you. He knows all that. That can be a comfort. I mean, part of the pain that we suffer in our relationships with other people is they're misjudging who we really are. Sometimes that's because we do or say things that distort or confuse others about our real motives or our real attitudes. We don't always communicate the right way. We don't always act in ways consistent with with what's going on on the inside. In fact, this is one of the things that's frightening to us when we interact with people, right? Is that we know how we feel, we know what we want to communicate, but sometimes it doesn't come out quite right, and it can cause problems for us. We can desire to do the right thing and do it poorly. Well, Jesus knows us. Jesus knows us deeply, and that's not only a comfort, it can also be convicting. It means that we can't fool Him about the true state of our hearts. You know, a lot of times we see disaster overtake a person spiritually. We see them veer off, and the reality is that veering started happening long before you see the outward evidence of it because it starts actually in the heart. And that's where Jesus sees. We, we can impress others in the way they make them think that we're better than we are, but Jesus knows who we really are. You know, I think about, you know, just if, if you have a responsibility as a teacher or a preacher or somebody that's is constantly dealing with, with holy things and sacred things and discipling other people. I mean, over the years, you can get pretty good at that. You, you know how to study out a Bible passage. You know how to uh, even lead a person to Christ. You, you, you know kind of the protocol of what to do. You, maybe you've been attending church maybe for 20 years here. You know, the, you know the routine. You know the songs. You, 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 you've got it down. And you can kind of drift into the motions of it. You know, every Sunday, you know, I know I have a date with destiny. I've got to say something. Okay? So I might as well be ready. That doesn't actually mean that my heart is right. And we know that because we know at the judgment that there are preachers and miracle workers, even people that cast out demons, that Jesus rejects. He says, I never knew you. I never knew you. You work lawlessness. I mean, you did all this religious stuff, but you were never really right with me, and I never entrusted myself to you. Jesus knows us deeply. In this case, these believers were impressed by Jesus, but not really committed to Him as their Savior and Lord. And, you know, people often see Jesus and Christianity, for that matter, as useful, 
but they don't see Jesus as the one they should bow the knee to. They don't see Jesus as the one to trust completely with their lives and their eternal souls. I mean, we're told about some of these individuals in the New Testament. There was Simon Magus. He, he had quite a following even before he heard the gospel. He, he was a magician. He did apparent miracles. He, he trusted in Jesus and in Acts 8 and, and was baptized and turned out that he wanted to use the power of the Spirit that came on people that were trusting Jesus and being baptized to increase his own following for financial gain. He offered money to the apostles to say, hey, teach me how to do that with people. Teach me how to lay my hands on them so that they have this extra spiritual power. Well, his tribe lives on. Many use religion as a moneymaker. We call it simony, by the way, named after him. They use it as a moneymaker and use it for a career, but they have little interest in denying themselves and taking up their cross and following Jesus wherever he leads us. You know, I, I just want to encourage you that, you know, it's really easy to get comfortable with the trappings of religion and with the benefits of Christianity and never actually have your heart right with God and trusting in him. Sometimes the most dangerous place you can be is in a church or a Christian school or a place where it's just the culture to do Christian stuff. Because sometimes that, that camouflages the reality of where your heart actually is. What do you do when you have the choice to actually make a choice, when you have that chance? Well, James tells us that the demons believe in God and tremble at his power, but they don't trust him with obedient faith. Obviously, they're, they're his enemies. It's mere theological facts that they hold to. I mean, they knew Jesus. The demons knew Jesus when he walked the planet. They knew he was the Holy One of God. It didn't mean that they were converting to him. They weren't trustingly bowing their will to the Lord. So it does us well to think about our own relationship, our own heart attitude toward Jesus, because Jesus knows the real sincerity of our faith. He sees our hearts. So what is it that actually attracts you to Jesus Christ? What are you hoping to gain by your connection with Christianity or, or even a church family like, like Hampton Park? And, and then how would you describe the depth of your faith in Jesus? And, and, and what are you relying on him to do for you? And what evidence do you see in your life? that he has actually entrusted himself to you, that he's made himself known to you. In fact, sometimes we say it this way, that Christianity is not so much about religion as it is about relationship, and it's trying to get at that. Uh, there is a religion to it. There is a reliance. There's a practices that go with following Jesus. But, but at the core of it is this relationship with Jesus. I am his and he is mine. And, and where are you on that? And it's probably one of those things that in a service like this, but, but maybe if you can find some time that's not distracted by a thousand other things where you can actually meditate on this and, and pray before the Lord and God say, God, you know, where am I really? Is my relationship with you what it ought to be? I mean, you could be a genuine believer, but, but actually be drifting from that relationship. Or it might be that, you know, you're just so comfortable with Christian stuff that it feels like home, but but you're not really close to Jesus, and he isn't close to you. And, and that's, 
so critically important for you to know where you really stand on that. And you had this group of people impressed with Jesus, and, and there's still lots of people impressed with Jesus. I mean, he's famous, okay, uh, who aren't actually following him, who don't actually belong to him. And we want to make sure that we know where we are. Secondly, Jesus perceives the kingdom you seek. And this is really related to the first question, because as Jesus, you know, tests the sincerity of our faith and looks at that, a lot of it is indicated. We kind of get a read on where our faith really is by what we really want, what we really desire. What, what are we trying to get out of following Jesus? Now, there was a man of the Pharisees, verse 1 of chapter 3, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Notice he uses that plural, we. So he's not the only one that knows this. He's just the only one that showed up to talk to Jesus. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him. It's almost like he didn't, you know, he just kind of brushed off the compliment and he said, truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus does this a lot. He just cuts to the chase right down to the depths of your soul. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, when we see the word Pharisee, we go, oh, wait a minute. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, really? I mean, the Pharisees usually play the villains in the Gospels. And so even those today who hold exactly the same doctrines bristle, if you ever use the term, to describe them. The group came into being in the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian, there are only about 6,000 of them in Christ's day. But in Christ's day, the common people highly respected them. So, so try to erase that these are the villains right now. They're going to show up to be villains, a lot of them, but try to erase that from your perception and go back, pretend like you're living in the first century. And, and if you were a person, even a lover of God, you would look at the Pharisees and you would have high respect for them. Like if, if you wanted to pick the best religious people in the community, these are the guys. Even though the Pharisees look down on the common people as ignorant and unclean, they still were looked up to. They had a high view of Scripture. They considered it to be inerrant. So many of them actually served as scribes, those who copied and taught the Scriptures for a living. They believed in miracles and in angels and in the resurrection. Their name, which means separatists, speaks of their zeal to stay unspotted from the surrounding Greek culture in order to preserve the historic faith of their fathers. And, you know, the surrounding Greek culture was corrupt in lots of ways. I mean, it fills museums today, but you start recognizing that a lot of that, that art stuff was actually part of pagan worship and all kinds of immorality, and, and that was surrounding um, the Jews, and they're trying to stay clean from that. They were the separatists. The more liberal Sadducees dominated the priesthood and the temple worship. So after the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, the Sadducees, since they were so connected with that temple worship, they, they largely died out. But the Pharisees then became dominant among the Jews, so much so that, that what is known as Judaism today 
It's largely a continuation of the Pharisaic tradition that focused on external ceremony and a disciplined system of good works. But Jesus warns against the prevailing hypocrisy that grew from those emphases. Their teaching and their practice were far apart, and they ignored the weightier matters of God's law like justice and mercy and faithfulness while obsessing about the minutia of tithing and fasting. Jesus put it this way, they strained out gnats and swallowed camels. They were blind guides of the blind, cleaning the outside of the cup, leaving the inside filthy. They were like whitewashed tombs containing rotting bones. So Jesus did not have high regard for them. So there's a contrast. They were popular. They were respected. But, but for many of them, the majority of them, Jesus knew they were actually wicked men with this veneer, this whitewashed veneer of, of external righteousness. Matthew 23 just lambasts them, and, and the apostles do as well. And that's why they could maintain fastidious attention to things like ceremonial hand-washing before a meal and thousands of other refinements while actively conspiring to murder Jesus. It's not okay to have dirty hands, but it's okay to murder an innocent man. That's how hypocritical this kind of religion can become anywhere it shows up. In the New Testament narrative, the Pharisees are so often the bad guys that it actually takes us back that Nicodemus is one of them and that he responds to Jesus so positively. In fact, verse 1 could read this way, but there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was unlike those who challenged the authority of Jesus after he cleansed the temple, and he is unlike those who only superficially believed in Jesus because of his miraculous signs. He belongs to the highly respected sect of the Jews, the Pharisees. He is also a ruler of the Jews, that is, a member of the ruling Sanhedrin, the 71 elders who carried civil, criminal, and religious authority in the nation of Israel. Rome reserved the right to conduct executions, but the Sanhedrin had the right to arrest people and to hold trials. They really, for all practical purposes, ruled the community. And we learn in verse 10 that Nicodemus is also a respected teacher of the law of God. I mean, this, this is like the who's who. He's a member of the who's who of the first century. But Nicodemus was not satisfied with his religious and civil attainment. Many others in his position were. As long as they received glory from their fellow man, they desired nothing more. In fact, Jesus confronts them in John 5, How can you believe, that is, believe in me, when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? In other words, they were so obsessed with the power and with the structure and with the externals that they were ignoring their actual relationship to God. And that's why they could do such evil things, even in the name of religion. And that's why they could continue to go on like, hey, there's nothing to see here while they're doing really evil things. Well, Jesus said 
your problem is that you think you're okay because you've got your cronies who say you're okay and the people who respect you, but you're not thinking about what God sees in your life. So Nicodemus is an exception to that. He's coming by night in part because of the way other Pharisees would respond to his seeking out Jesus. In John 9, we learned that they kicked anyone who confessed Jesus to be Messiah out of the synagogue. I mean, the synagogue was like church. It's where they gathered to worship. And I mean, you're out. You got discipline out. You got excommunicated if you confess that Jesus is actually the Messiah. So Nicodemus is coming by night. He also may be coming by night in order to have uninterrupted conversation. Like getting away from the hustle and bustle of the day, he wants to sit down and have a deep conversation with Jesus. He sees in Jesus someone highly unusual. He is impressed by Jesus' miracles, but he knows that they point to an even more important truth. God must be with this man Jesus, or he couldn't do what he does. And even that realization leads him further. It leads Nicodemus to a greater unspoken question. Could it be possible that Jesus is the promised Messiah who will bring about the kingdom of God? So while Jesus is the first one to talk about the kingdom of God, he's not the first one thinking about it. Remember, he knows what's in man, and he's answering that heart desire. Jesus sees to the core of this man, as he did all people. And Nicodemus makes a statement of observation, but Jesus knows that Nicodemus is seeking for much more. Jesus answers Nicodemus's unspoken question with a startling answer. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does it mean to see the kingdom of God? Well, it means to experience it. You want to experience the kingdom of God? You think I might be the one that can, can lead you to that experience? You want to experience it? Let me tell you what's got to happen. You've got to be born again. The end of chapter 3, we see this term used again. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son... So you're not believing in Him enough to rely on Him, to obey Him. The Son shall not see life. That's not just you're sitting in the observation booth watching life go by. That's experiencing life. But the wrath of God remains on Him. So to see the kingdom of God, to see life, is to experience the life of God in the soul of man. It's to experience being part of His everlasting kingdom. So we learn from this that all the training, all the self-discipline, all the biblical knowledge, all the community respect, the political and religious power, and even the earnest seeking was insufficient for Nicodemus. And Nicodemus senses that. He, he knows something is missing. And, and, and Jesus knows what is missing? He knows that it's missing, and he knows what Nicodemus needs. And Jesus is going to unveil exactly what Nicodemus needs. Maybe this morning, you're, that's where you are. Like, you, you know, you've made a lot of efforts, and you've had a lot of successes. You've got a lot of accomplishments under your belt, but, but you still know that something's, something's not quite right. I, I, I really want more. I'm seeking for something more 
than I've attained here. I mean, for all practical purposes, Nicodemus had achieved success in all the kingdoms of this world. I mean, in all the boxes you would check for success in life, he had them. And, and he, its heart, wants something more. Are you one of those people? Are you one of those people? If you have paid attention to Jesus' powerful words and miraculous works, have you ever thought about how he compares with any other human being? I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not that this, this is like storybook stuff, like, oh, this is an interesting story. Like, Jesus, historical person, the God-man, who taught the way no one ever else taught, who did things no one else ever did, that calls you to, like, wait a minute, who is this person? Why is he on the planet? What's he doing? Have, have you taken a step beyond just, well, that's an interesting story. And then, what have you done then to explore further who Jesus is? And I would encourage you, if you know, you're just not sure about this, you know, and, and I'll grant you, like, all this religious stuff is really confusing. I mean, Christianity is confusing. I mean, just so travel around and get all the different versions of, of doing it, and you just like, what? what? I don't even get it, okay? And, and you read your Bible sometimes, and you look at what people are doing, and you can't figure out how they can act, and you, it's like, what is going on here? And let me just encourage you, explore who Jesus is. Take your time to pay attention to him. And, and, and let the scriptures that are the eyewitness accounts of what he did and what he said, let those lead you to trusting him at a deeper level. Now, what, what can stand in the way is if you actually are satisfied with the kingdoms of this world. So, so let me ask this question. What do you value most and pursue most and fear to lose most? Because that will reveal whether you are pursuing the kingdom of God or the kingdoms of this world. That, that will reveal whether or not you want God or you want some substitute for God, some idol. And then what of your standing or attainments make you feel secure or accomplished or satisfied? In other words, if so-and-so thinks I'm a good person, if these people think I'm a good person, am I, is, is that enough for me? Because all of it put together is not enough if you want to experience the kingdom of God. And so here's my appeal to you. Don't desire less. Desire more. Something permanent. Something infinite. Something God-sized. Something eternal. Don't be satisfied with a bigger paycheck. Don't be satisfied with more vacation. Don't be satisfied with political power or, or respect from the... Don't be satisfied with that. God, you need God. You need the kingdom of God. Pursue that. And that leads us to the third reality, is that Jesus gives the life you most need. And this has begun, become more evident as we go beyond our passage this morning. But Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born, because he's used this terminology, born again, uh, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Actually, it reads, you know, he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb, can he? In other words, don't think that Nicodemus is so stupid. He's not a stupid man that he's thinking, oh, well, I'm just going to do the birth thing again. Hey, that's not going to work very well. He might do it in virtual reality and imagine this happening, but it's not going to happen for real. 
He's, he's looking for clarity on what being born again or born from above actually means. He knows it's a ridiculous idea that you could be physically born again. Verse 5, Jesus answered that. Truly, truly, I say to you, just rephrases it, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He shifts from to see or experience the kingdom to enter the kingdom. In other words, you can't even get started with this experience unless you're born of water and the Spirit. So, what does that mean? Well, some see water as a reference to physical birth, parallel to being born of the flesh versus born of the Spirit, so of human origin. Others think it refers to baptism and its symbolic significance of the Spirit's regenerating. And, and it starts, you start to get some clarity when you compare some other passages. For instance, in the New Testament, in Titus, we read, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by washing of regeneration, that's being born again, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So, this is not going to be something that you achieve, Nicodemus, by all your standing in the community and all your rule-keeping and even all your Bible study. This is going to have to be something God gives you. This is going to have to be something that God does for you and in you. And judging from the Old Testament, this spiritual renewal and cleansing does seem to be Jesus' main focus. Ezekiel 36 says it this way, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. So this is like New Covenant kind of language, New Testament kind of language. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of, of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I mean, he's talking about this, this cleansing and this change, this life that's from the inside out. And Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, that's what you need. This is not an outside-in thing. This is an inside-out thing, and this is something only God can possibly do. I mean, nobody decides, I think I'll be born. Not a person on the planet. I mean, y'all were born. Evidently, you were all born. I don't think you were hatched, but you were all born. But you had no choice in the matter. You just showed up. God has a choice in this, too. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 uses similar language to describe what Christ has done for His church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. By the way, that just like redefines the pagan notions of leadership that look at it as lording and bullying. It's giving yourself for the good of another person. Now, he did this that He might sanctify her, having, been, having cleansed her, by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so in verses 6 and 7, we read, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, don't be astonished or amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The way into the kingdom of God is not by physical birth or by physical deeds. There must be new life 
There must be deep cleansing that comes from the Spirit of God himself. And John has already talked about this. He talked about this in chapter 1 and verse 12. To all who did receive him, that is Jesus, believed in his name, he gave the right, the authority to become children of God who are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Born of God. His spiritual DNA, his life taking over my life, his purity cleansing my heart from the inside out. So, so how do you know if a person actually is born again, born of the Spirit? And Jesus actually answers with a comparison to the wind. And it's interesting, wind, breath, spirit, all the same word in the language that Jesus is speaking. So, it, it makes for a, a really helpful comparison. In verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So how do you know there's wind? You can't see it. Well, you, you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. The, the hit and miss nature of even modern day weather forecasts shows that they don't know where it's going either okay, or where it came from. They, even though they've got all the tracking devices, it still fakes them out. So if you can't see the wind, how do you know it's even there? Well, you know it by the effect. Jesus says you can hear it. I mean, sometimes you're inside the house and you hear the wind. If you hear the wind while you're inside the house, uh, it depends on how loud it is, but you might want to find shelter. The wind's out there. You see the effect. You, you experience the effect. It makes the leaves rustle. It blows the clouds across the sky. You feel the breeze on your cheek. You see the rain slanting sideways right up under your umbrella. Or the water in the lake churned up into waves, and you know that there's wind. You know there's wind by the effect of the wind. Well, how do you know someone is born of the Spirit? You see the effect of the Spirit in his or her life. Things like love and joy peace and gentleness and long-suffering and goodness and faith and self-control. You see truthing in love. You see loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You see a person loving one's neighbor as himself. You see honesty and humility and repentance and trust and compassion and self-sacrifice. These mark people born of God because these are the characteristics of God. You know, a lot of people that say they're godly and they're following God aren't anything like God. They don't think like God. They don't talk like God. They don't treat other people like God treats people. They don't know God. They don't have life from God. They have life from God. You see that life of God flowing out in their life. You see, lost people can do ceremony. Nicodemus is one of them at this point. They can modify their dress and grooming. They can add to their to-do list. They can put money in the offering. They can keep their distance from bad people. They can go to a Christian school or even teach there. They can be influential and powerful in the community. 
But is there any evidence of life from God? That's the question. All the other is stage props. Is there life from God? To enter and experience the kingdom of God is to trust and love the king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ. It's to bow before him with humble repentance. It's to rely on him to rescue you from yourself. It's to yield to his control and leadership. It's to trust him as your good shepherd, the good shepherd of the sheep who will lead his flock safely through all the trials and dangers of life all the way home, his home, his heavenly home, paradise. The Spirit of God guides your heart to Jesus and then glorifies Jesus through your life. So our question this morning is, you know, when did the Spirit of God give you life to experience God's rule in your life? Those of you that are truly born again, you may not remember an actual moment, but you know that it happened because you've seen the change from the inside out. And what evidence of the life of the Spirit are you experiencing in your everyday life? Or is it still just like Nicodemus' religion? And what would those who know you best say they see in your life that shows the effect of the Spirit of God? These are deep questions. These are questions we have to deal with. Well, we have to stop here. But it does leave us hanging. Like, what happened to Nicodemus? And next week, we'll learn more. We're going to continue the conversation. And then I hope to give you an answer to, well, did Nicodemus make it or not? But know this right now. Jesus knows the sincerity of your faith. Rest in that and be warned by that. Jesus perceives the kingdom you seek. What do you really want out of life? Is the kingdom of God what you're seeking first or not? And Jesus gives the life you most need when he gives you the Spirit of God who changes you from the inside out. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you, God, for your beautiful, powerful word. Thank you, God, for this treasure, this, this jewel of a conversation between a needy, seeking man who from the outside seemed to have everything going his way, who of all people would have been one of the ones that, that God would consider one of his people, and yet had one huge lack, spiritual life, being born again. Oh, God, I pray for every individual gathered here this morning Lord, we, we pretty much fall into the category of Nicodemus in terms of Bible learning, in terms of association with godly people, in terms of, of ceremonies of religion that are, that are good and even based on the Bible, in terms of our respect for the Word, in terms of our interest in spiritual things. But God, God, may we, may we ascertain, may we make sure we know whether we have life from God, whether we've been born of the Spirit. And God, I pray 
that your spirit would work. That God, you'd take these words and, and have them pry right down into the depths of hearts and, and bring repentance and faith and joy of knowing that we have life from God. We pray this in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who has made it possible through his death and resurrection and intercession for us at this hour. In Christ's name.